All right, so uh, let's get started. Um, I'm Joachim Reiter. I'm uh, invited in my current capacity as Deputy Secretary General of UNCTAD. Um, let me first off start off by uh, saying and congratulating Cato very much for an incredibly interesting conference. Uh, particularly, I would say this topic will be rather interesting in the sense of trying to broadening the perspective. What we're supposed to discuss here is TTIP and the multilateral trading system in a broad sense. And we have with us um, three very eminent speakers to address this. Uh, after I've spoken, I will ask uh, Vinod Agarwal, University of California, Berkeley, to speak. After that, Jost Pavlin from Georgia University Law Center. And finally, Harsha Singh from my ICTSD and many other things, actually, Harsha. Uh, but let me start by saying this has been rather gloomy, I must say, on the TTIP, and of course its effect depends on whether it exists. So um, uh, we will work on the presumption of this seminar that TTIP will be a resounding success. Uh, it's a, it may be a tall hypothesis and assumption, judging from previous panels, but I will request all panelists to work on that assumption as we progress to the question of effects, because nothing, something that doesn't exist obviously does not have an effect. So um, why is this question very important from the point of view um, of my perspective and why I thought it was very good that Cato put this as one of the key topics for a specific session? Well, let me first try to recall the fact that actually the globe, current global trading system was created, maintained, and developed by the two participants in TTIP. And they don't take that as assignment lightly in terms of their commitment to the multilateral trading system, neither of the parties. So obviously, the effect of TTIP is something that uh, presumably they also care about. Second, EU and US are major powers. They have just recently, two weeks ago, committed to the sustainable development in goals, including the commitment to eradicate poverty. So the manner in which TTIP will interact with uh, the commitments by the United States and the European Union uh, on the development of the world is, of course, a relevant one. Third, uh, developing countries around the world are currently considering mitigation strategies to, to, um, to plurilateral agreements as well as mega-regionals to which there are no parties. And I hope that the panels will be able to, to have a conversation of what could be the feasible mitigation strategies. And finally, of course, WTO is the bedrock uh, upon which we all nations basically build their insurance system for multilateral trade or global trade. And the, I would like the panel to address also what could be the mitigation strategies, adaption strategies for the multilateral trading system. I have been uh, selected to be both moderator and to give an introductory speech, and thank you very much for that, Dan. Uh, but these are the parameters that I've given to the panel. As, suppose, as, as concerns my own speech, let me just highlight a number of things that, at least from my perspective, would need to be taken into account. Uh, first is actually to put uh, TTIP in a bit of a context. In my view, uh, TTIP is often oversold. It's often very, very, very large arguments, and you're mixing apples and oranges. I'm a little bit more on the Frederick, uh, if you remember from the first panel, that this is, is a very important uh, FTA. It's very important for the participants, it's very important for the world because the participants are so incredibly important for the global economy. But in the end, it's an FTA. And there are a lot of FTAs out there. So uh, when you describe the effect of TTIP, you also have to take into account the fact that we're not starting from scratch. It's not an sort of a vacuum out there. It's 262 free trade agreements currently in force. First point. Second point, when it comes to the effects of TTIP on third countries and the 
global trading system, and I would like to distinguish that or distinguish that from the multilateral trading system, meaning WTO. If you start with the uh, effects on third countries, at least from my point of view, I have to differentiate between tariffs and the regulatory agenda. If I start with the tariffs part, which is unfortunately often overlooked, if this is a serious um, uh, free trade agreement providing for a number of uh, de facto sub substantial trade elimination of tariffs, it is quite interesting to note that contrary to some of the concerns by developing countries, at least from the assessment of my organization, the, at aggregate level, there would be quite limited trade diversion. In other words, because the EU and the US in stimulating their economies through this, and it is on the supply side, it's not on the demand side, it's a separate conversation of what the EU and the US should be doing on the uh, demand side, which is really an, not in a good state. Uh, but actually, because it will stimulate the increased trade flow and both the EU and the US are sourcing heavily from uh, developing countries, we would imagine on the aggregate level that would be a positive effect from the tariff elimination. This being said, on specific sectors, there could be quite negative effects. For example, when we have looked at this, uh, fisheries industries in Ghana would be one example of a in agricultural uh, produce sold to the EU market, considering the high original or the MFN duties of the EU, could be displacement effects on the EU market, which of course needs to be taken into account. And as you all know, any country selling things, the individual products matter. So even if the aggregate effect is positive, you do care about the negative displacement effect for individual products. So in our view, in terms of mitigation measures, there the EU and the US could do more. First, it's quite important to have liberal and simplified rules of origin so as not to disrupt the value chains in which EU and US companies are part of. Unfortunately there, uh, the track record of the EU um, when it comes to negotiating rules of origin, allowing for uh, non-originating material to be counted as part of the preference treatment of free trade agreements is not encouraging and we would encourage both parties to do more in that field. The second thing is more homework perhaps for the US is to expand its current preference schemes. I think AGOA has a current coverage of 86%. A number of products are excluded. Uh, where the EU producers would basically have better access to the US market than African producers. Or for that matter, LDCs, which are also not fully covered in terms of preferential access to the US market. So if, you, if the parties are serious about the developmental impact for poor developing countries, these are two measures that they can take in terms of mitigation strategies. With respect to the re regulatory field, I'm very happy, um, I mean, this is an area where a lot of people are very concerned when we talk about developing countries. Uh, our line is basically, well, you know, you could be worried if we're talking about harmonization to a higher level than the current uh, level of regulation in the two parties. That's just not realistic. Harmonization is not in the cards and raising the standards is very, very, very unlikely. So the most negative effect that you could assume theoretically is just not going to materialize. Where we come out is actually almost the opposite, in the sense that the worst case scenario here is the status quo, i.e. no benefits deriving to developing countries. In ideal case, should there be regulatory approximation, for example, through mutual recognition of testing results and conformity assessment, under the condition that these are extended to uh, non-participants, uh, producers that basically fulfill the requirements, that actually they just have to meet one test for both markets instead of currently two tests, which is actually plus. So in terms of a cost-benefit analysis, the regulatory approximation, worst case, status quo, no improvement. Uh, ideal case, developing countries would probably benefit. 
Uh, my third thing is on the global trading system implication for the WTO. And here we, we actually view the effect more um, psychological than uh, factual, in the sense that uh, there is, there is a, because fears have been uh, rising uh, with, the, with the arrival of mega regionals, people are actually starting to think about whether they're approaching both the WTO and their own trade agenda in the right way. That type of spillover effects are, broadly speaking, positive. Uh, for example, in the way that Africa has started to think about its own trilateral agreement, or its own continental free trade agreement, which is basically mega regional. And there is an enormous untapped potential for trade growth through regional integration in developing countries. Like intra-African trade today is 14%. If you compare that with East, East Asia, it's 50%. If you compare it with the EU, it's 65% around there. So it's an enormous untapped potential. And the reason why they haven't tapped that potential is the many barriers that exist between African countries. Basically, connectivity is extremely limited uh, in terms of commerce in Africa. So if they feel that there is a game change going on with, through mega regions, thereby seeking closer regional integration in Africa, this is a good thing for African producers, it's a good thing for African consumers, and it's a good thing for African general development. So one mitigation strategy coming from a global picture would certainly be to accelerate regional integration efforts elsewhere. Another one, which has to do with the WTO, is the fact that there is a growing gap between the level of ambition you put in regional trade agreements and what we can manage to deliver in WTO. So the solution to that is not to put a bar on regional trade agreements, but actually to start seriously discussing how to raise the level of ambition in the WTO. And I'm sure Nautnit Harsha will have a number of very smart points on this one. But from our point of view, one of the conclusions by the rise of mega regions is actually to put more ambition into the agenda of the WTO. The third mitigation strategy on a global level is whether countries would be interested in docking into the agreement. This is not a solution for the vast majority of developing countries. But it certainly is a question that, for example, Norway, Switzerland, Turkey, and we heard in the previous panel, uh, Mexico and Canada may want to consider. Beyond a, a version of that is to be inspired by the provisions and take them into bilateral agreements that you are seeking with one of the TTIP uh, partners like the EPAS economic partnership agreements between the EU and its former colonies is one thing. So could there be a spillover effect? I think this is a question I want to put to the panel. I'm personally not at all convinced that people will be prepared to sign the dotted line individual, on individual provisions or for the agreement as a whole. Uh, the reason why I say that is that I see mega regions partly as a reaction to the change in distribution of power in the global system. So as you multilateralize something or plurilateralize these mega regions afterwards, it's highly unlikely that people will forget about the fact that they have more power than they had in the past. So why would they sign on any dotted line? That's not my experience as a negotiator, uh, that, that I would ever sign up to something that someone else has negotiated in a, in a closed room that I was not part of. And I don't think emerging economies approach it like that. So uh, that was my attempt at starting the conversation. I now lead to Vinod to continue it. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the invitation to speak at Cato. Uh, I have two prefatory remarks. One is that after reading uh, the various papers by, by Dr. Singh and uh, Howland's uh, your comments, I can see the adage that great minds think alike may be true or small minds seldom differ. 
So we do have a lot of similarities in what we have. The second remark is that uh, my usual role as a political economist, as some of you who know me, is to tell economists why what they want to do can't be done and to show all the political impediments in front of them despite the wonderful economic models that show these great gains from trade. In this case, I have to say, uh, I'm pleasantly surprised, and maybe you'll be pleasantly surprised, I actually think there, I have more optimism on TTIP. Uh, I would not have thought TPP would go as smooth, smoothly as it did. And if you think about it, there are a lot of differences among the countries in TPP. And so if anything, it would be quite unlikely to have an agreement in TPP. So the fact that you can get TPP done, and it does include a number of the same issues that are in TTIP, suggests that there might be cause for optimism. Now I can revert back to my old style, which is to say, well, let me tell you why TTP, TTIP is actually more problematic. Ironically, I think there are a number of strong similarities between the two economies. And one is it's a geopolitical issue. Both countries, are, both groups are very large, the EU and the United States. And they've been engaged in pitch battles in the WTO for some time. And I think the most important point in a different paper that Simon Evident and I have put together is to look at the fact that regulators in both countries are extremely strong. And I think what we really here have is a disjuncture between what trade negotiators want to do and what regulators want to do. That could be regulators in the EU, or it could be regulators such as in the Treasury or FDA who don't want anybody touching their turf. So there's really a turf battle going on here between regulators and trade negotiators, and USTR and, and the counterparts in, in the EU may wish to make these trade agreements, but of course the regulators say, hey, stay away from finance, stay away from a lot of these issues. So uh, moving, moving forward, uh, I think one other point that's useful to think about is the fact this, that we talk about mega FTAs, but we need to think about not only TPP and also talk about, of course, TPIP, but also RCEP. And the fact that RCEP is moving along provides a different forum in which both India and China are involved. And I think that's a very important thing. You need to really do a comparative assessment of mega FTAs. And we actually have a special issue for a little self-promotion on TPP and RCEP and looking at the differences that's coming out in a journal. Now, let me turn directly to TTIP and think about the impact on third countries and think about <clears throat> six possible ways, and I think some of them have been covered, but just to be more systematic about it, we, think of, we can think about the way in which you might have third parties trying to engage with the TTIP process. The first is that they could just join the negotiations. And that was raised, I think, by, you know, you know, why can't you have the Canadians? Why can't you have the Mexicans? And I think Gary pointed out very nicely, uh, U.S. relations with Canada and, Obama, and Mexico have been at an all-time low under the Obama administration. And of all the things that puzzled me, when the Canadians said, let's join TPP, I was shocked by how much opposition there was in the United States to the Canadians joining TPP, given that we already have NAFTA. And it took me some time to understand, OK, I'll boil down to dairy and pig farmers and a few other things. So very narrow, specific interests were able to kind of block them for some time. So I think this is kind of a no-go that other countries will join these negotiations. And USTR was actually quite reluctant. Every time somebody else wanted to join TPP, they were actually reluctant. And they bluntly told the Canadians, you had your big chance to join P4, and you mocked P4, which is the forerunner of TPP, because you thought, who wants to join a bunch of little countries? So I think uh, that option of joining the negotiation is not likely. A second is you can wait till the negotiations have been concluded, and you can join that accord. And in some sense, that's what you had from NAFTA, from CUFTA to NAFTA. You had the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement. It was then subsequently expanded to have NAFTA. And of course, there are other provisions and so on. So you could have that kind of approach. That 
that seems to me complicated. They can try to do that. It's not obvious that there is any specified mechanism to join, unlike TPP, which is actually encouraging countries to dock on to TPP. So I don't see that in TTIP, and maybe that could be an advice to policymakers, you know, at least give other countries an option to do that. A third option is that countries may respond by trying to negotiate an FTA of some kind with either the EU or the US. And so that possibility is, you know, the chorus could be kind of indirectly docked on. It depends on rules of origins and things like that. So that's another possibility. Uh, then there's a fourth option is that you may just simply wait and then try to multilateralize TTIP into the WTO. And I think there is precedent for this. Again, we can go back to the US-Canada agreement and NAFTA, where the US was able to, in other countries, Canada too, introduce things into both CUFTA and NAFTA that were subsequently kind of multilateralized. I think it was really from CUFTA that we got it multilateralized into the uh, Uruguay round of, of uh, the WTO. So that's another possibility. You can sort of wait for the US and then multilateralize it. Then you can also kind of negotiate on separate accords, right? So if we don't have a single undertaking, or even if there is a single undertaking, we could join piecemeal. So if you're India or you're China, what have you, say, look, I'm really interested in government procurement. I'm really interested in standards in IT. And then you could try to join specific parts of the agreement. That also could be kind of an opening for uh, third parties to join. And sixth is, and I think we've talked about this a little bit, can you unilaterally adopt the same rules and regulatory standards, and then you can sort of get mutual recognition from the fact that you're doing that. And I think a lot of this is based on the issue, which I think you're going to talk about, Jules, uh, about three elements, which is that we have discussed already, we have market access negotiations going on, we have negotiations about rules, and we have negotiations about regulatory issues. And I think there's a difference in third-party accession in each of these and the implications of third parties being excluded, whether it's rules or market access. And I think the one in which countries clearly lose is in market access, but has been repeatedly pointed out, for the most part, and then here we have to exclude agriculture and textiles and a few other of my favorite industries, for the most part, tariffs are very low. So therefore, market access is not the biggest deal in the world. Okay, with respect to rules, maybe on labor standards, uh, if you look at labor standards and environmental standards, I think the US and the EU have increasingly been pushing those issues already in their FTAs after the 2007 agreement in the United States. It was in congressional agreement, it was very clear that you're gonna have all these agreements, whether it's chorus or what have you, will have environmental labor standards, so that will also be the case. And the third and last one is regulatory. And here, I think that's where you really have a lot of complications. There are a lot of benefits from joining these regulatory standards, but essentially, uh, this is now the first time in which you might argue the US is now in the driver's seat with respect to global trade negotiations. The US was kind of sidelined in some ways. We had a lot of trouble. The EU was going out and negotiating a lot of bilateral trade agreements. The US did this. We did a lot of bilateral trade agreements with the key uh, global trading partners like Morocco and Bahrain and other important economic actors. So clearly there was a security element to that, so that was not really happening. But I think with respect to regulatory issues, that's where we will really see potential difficulties for third parties to join the agreement. And if they're not a part of that, then essentially regulatory standards in the 21st century will be set by the US, number one, and by the EU, number two which may or may not meet the interests of third parties and may not, in fact, really be very good for global trade in some respects. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Dan Simon, for um, having me here. 
I come to this uh, table with uh, two specific perspectives. So I'm not a negotiator, I'm not involved in the TTIP negotiations, but I'm for the most part based in Geneva, Switzerland, where the WTO is based. So I come to it from a WTO perspective. And I am based in Switzerland. And as you know, it's also one of those outsiders, third parties, that are um, pretty much concerned about it. Switzerland has a, a deal with the EU, but they are worried that this may be undermined by, by TTIP. So I think going back to your six options, uh, Vinny, they have probably in mind to unilaterally hook on to uh, what may come out or at least negotiate a side deal with, with the US. The other perspective I've, I have is I'm, I'm a lawyer. Um, I used to work in the WTO legal staff, so I'm involved in dispute settlement. I'm a law professor. I litigate WTO, FTA, and ISDS cases, so my talk will be somewhat more, more technical, but I'll, I'll try to keep it um, understandable. So this panel really deals with how the WTO and, and TTIP may interrelate. And thinking about it, I was thinking about this famous paradox of what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. And this is really very much how I see the relationship playing forward. So obviously the unstoppable force is FTAs and PTAs being all over the place. The immovable object is very much the WTO. Um, people have said this is not really a paradox. If it's really unstoppable, the immovable object would uh, have to go out of the way and the other way around. It could also be that they are just two ships passing in the night. Basically, what I will try to show is that what we will need is to have some type of control over the unstoppable force of PTAs, and that at the WTO level, we'll have to make this immovable object a little bit more flexible. So I'll do three things. I'll first say why this FTA movement is pretty much an unstoppable force. I'll say a few things about why the WTO is immovable um, for most part and then go through a, a number of issues by way of conclusion that we will have to address moving forward. So the unstoppable force of, of PTAs, I think Joachim uh, mentioned it already, there's close to 300 preferential trade agreements out there. When teaching in this area, I was always using the example of Mongolia as the only WTO member out of 161 that didn't have a PTA so far. The bad news is that last year they also concluded a preferential trade agreement and of all countries with Japan, Japan being a traditional um, outlier, very hesitant to conclude PTA deals. Honestly, if we had mentioned uh, five or six years ago that there would be an EU-US PTA, this is a huge uh, game changer. Unstoppable force also in terms of what kind of preferential agreements we are talking about. The term is often used, mega-regionals. This is no longer the traditional small-type Bahrain-US PTA. We have TPP, TTIP, uh, RCEP. Looking at this from Geneva, this is really undermining the WTO centrality. A lot of people in Geneva are very worried about this. Unstoppable force also in terms of the coverage. It's no longer tariffs, it's, it's rules, it's investment, it's services. You know, in 2000, there were only four preferential trade agreements in the area of trade and services. Last year, there were 127. So this is really uh, a force to be reckoned with. Now, a few points on, on why the WTO is really this immovable object, and in what sense. The WTO is celebrating its 20th anniversary. A lot of people in Geneva are all excited, boasting about what has happened, how, how wonderful the regime has been. 
the reality is that in the last 20 years, very little has moved on the negotiating side. And we all know this. There's a TRIPS amendment, but it's not even enforced yet because uh, the majorities haven't been achieved. There's a couple of waivers that were enacted. Committee decisions have had an influence on ministerial declarations, the, the trade facilitation agreement, the GPA revision. But other than that, we haven't really seen a lot of movement. Now, why is that? I think most people agree on this. Imagine 161 countries, and it's not just a number, it's also the diversity between them. You have now China, um, Russia, part of the membership, many more countries with de facto veto power. The issues that are on the table are far more difficult. It's no longer tariffs, it's, it's rules. It's kind of normal that we move towards clubs to, to iron out the differences there. And I think um, Frederick mentioned it this, uh, this morning already, there is also the issue of political salience. I mean, in the wake of the financial crisis, the environmental imperatives, and the end of the Washington consensus, it has become very, very difficult to agree on, on anything in this multilateral setting. Now, the WTO has been immovable in a, in a different way. Um, it has really failed to keep any kinds of check or control on, on preferential trade agreements that have been enacted. There is a committee on regional trade agreements. It has really been dysfunctional. It hasn't been able to make decisions either way. There is dispute settlement, but somewhat surprisingly, in 20 years, there's only been one appellate body case looking at the compliance uh, with uh, preferential trade agreements and WTO rules, the customs union between the EU and Turkey. Some people are saying, well, that probably means that all these PTAs are consistent with the WTO. Recent studies, and I think most people would agree, um, go in the other direction. There's a, a very interesting paper by a former WTO official stating that about 60-70% of PTAs are actually WTO minus or not complying with WTO rules uh, when it comes to GATT or GATS uh, conditions. Now, immovable also in another way, and I think that's what, uh, what Vinny was already alluding to, in the GATS um, rulebook, the fear about PTAs is one of discrimination, is one of trade diversion. That test, if you ask me, is really outdated. Uh, if you look at an agreement like TTIP or TPP, yes, there's some trade diversion potential in there, there's some discrimination, but most of the provisions are hard to implement on, on a discriminatory um, platform. So we did some studies looking at the Korea, US, Korea, EU um, PTAs, and it's surprising how many of the provisions in there by various methods are really extended or have to be extended on an MFN basis, just because of technical necessity, if you talk about transparency, because the member states or the parties have opted to implement this on a non-discriminatory basis, notice and comments procedures, or because of MFN provisions. Uh, anything on IP, for example, needs to be extended on an MFN basis. You don't have a PTA exception in the TRIPS agreement. A lot of US MFN provisions are concluded in bilateral investment treaties. Uh, the EU has MFN provisions in other FTAs. So whether you like it or not, a lot of the stuff that is exchanged in TPP or TTIP will have to be extended to third parties also. Now, a last element in terms of the WTO being immovable, and there I get, I get a little bit more technical, is that the appellate body is open to look at these issues, but has been very strict when it comes to interpreting, for example, GATT Article 24 on PTAs. 
or WTO rules are very strict on bringing in plurilaterals within the WTO agreement. You need to have a consensus of all WTO member states. And recent cases, including um, one I worked on between Peru and Guatemala, have really put a number of breaks in terms of outside agreements influencing the WTO package, making it a bit more uh, adapted to, to current concerns. So where does that leave me in terms of challenges ahead? Um, as I said, I think we will need to find ways to keep PTAs, including TTIP, in check to avoid that they go WTO minus in major ways, make sure that they are transparent for third parties, including developing countries, but also countries like Switzerland, and at the same time find ways to update this WTO that is really a little bit frozen in time. Now, how can we update the WTO? Um, uh, Mr. Singh will talk about this, but for me, one perspective is that we need to stop looking at it as a fight between the WTO and TPAs. This clearly has to become a division of labor. In the WTO, we are stuck with this mantra of reciprocal bargains. I was talking to a, an ambassador from a developing country, and he was saying, I like the trade facilitation agreement, but the US and the EU are so fond of it, so there must be something wrong about it that hurts me. This idea that you can actually have an agreement that benefits both sides doesn't really fit uh, the WTO mindset. And it has been mentioned um, by several people this morning, in the WTO, we are used to work with hard law, dispute settlement, treaties enacted and then hard dispute settlement linked to it. Uh, as Gary was mentioning, I see the TTIP as really a long-term process, not so much a treaty, but a process. And as much as I am a lawyer and like litigation, I think we will have to have guidelines, soft law in there um, to, to move this forward. Two very brief points on Yes, two very brief points on more legal issues. What I'm worried about is um, double PTAs. I mean, if TTIP is, TPP is now concluded, you have the NAFTA. The legal issues of how do these, not the WTO and regional trade agreements, but different PTAs interrelate is becoming a very serious issue. There's been a, a CAFTA case on this already, looking at how CAFTA relates to the Central American Customs Union a lot of legal issues that haven't really been addressed uh, head on. And the last point I'd like to mention, and it goes back to dispute settlement as well, the more WTO plus we have in agreements like TTIP, the more we will have to think about workable dispute settlement mechanisms in these preferential trade agreements. Today, most uh, disputes uh, that could have been handled under regional trade agreements go to the WTO. I think over time, this will change because of WTO plus elements and PTAs. But regional trade agreements and the dispute settlement mechanism they have are really dysfunctional in many ways. Uh, the CAFTA case I've mentioned was, was quite interesting to go through. We don't even have clear provisions on how to deal with forum shopping, how to deal with overlaps. And the WTO, as I said, has really put a block on looking at outside agreements, even agreements that tell you to sequence, for example, uh, WTO and regional trade dispute settlements. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Joachim. And I want to thank Cato, Dan, and other friends here who have uh, invited me, given this opportunity. To, it's, a, it's a wonderful event, very high quality participation. Uh, when I, and Joachim has, has commented about this. He started by saying that the presumption is that TTIP will be a success. 
And when I was hearing various statements today about TTIP, I was reminded about two years ago when I started working on a, on a project on trying to sensitize India how its markets will change after TPP and also try and work in the area of standards how, because of the private standards, uh, value chains, and, and the kind of uh, trends which are now seen, for example, in the G7 declaration uh, section on responsible supply chains. Uh, we can discuss that separately. But when I was working on that, I heard from everyone, including in Washington, TPP is not going to happen as late as May this year. So uh, I, I think the reason it's happened is because the country is concerned recognize the fact that without that, you know, we are talking about various difficulties and costs. Without that, the difficulties and costs might be even higher. So one has to really expand the, the scope of what is loss or what is the cost of doing something and not doing something. And the other thing which uh, I come from, you know, Juice talked about WTO and uh, the perspective he came with. I, I have a WTO perspective, but I have a larger one which is that today we are in a world with major interdependence and interconnectedness. We are far more dependent for our own prosperity on others, and we are developing a highly fragmented world at the same time. And one could say this fragmentation is temporary, therefore it's like, like a locomotive what we have here, and that's what history has shown us. Uh, but what I would like to uh, emphasize is that the earlier we move towards uh, multilateralization, the better it, it is for everyone concerned, including the United States or the EU. And when we have uh, uh, discussed various issues, we talked about EU, US, a little bit TPP. China came up a few times, but very little uh, concern about all the others, because the action is actually in that uh, inner uh, circle in a list of concentric circles. But those concentric circles are one integrated whole. Therefore, it's very important to try and see how to multilateralize it. The second point is that we, even though we are discussing new issues, we are discussing them from the perspective of old ideas like trade. Today, investment changes the whole manner in which countries interact. You can have a trade agreement here between the EU and US, and investment from countries which are, which are excluded can change the, the relationship as well as business opportunities. I tell people that there's a, uh, there's a TPP which China is negotiating, and it's called the Silk Route. So with this perspective, I now just want to uh, get into uh, another aspect, RCEP was mentioned. I think RCEP, was its impact was overestimated. One, because it's not going to de develop standards which are global standards. Second, seven RCEP members are already part of TPP. Eighth one, Korea has applied. Some more from ASEAN. Indonesia announced yesterday that it is interested in applying. And uh, my assessment is that China is also keen to join that game. So the only country which really is not thinking about moving on to standards of TPP is India, but 
Today, there is a, uh, an editorial in a very influential newspaper arguing to follow that course. So the global standards, both because they are higher than what RCEP will come up with, and the membership moving on to a new agreement is, will be determined by T TPP. TTIP is going to extend it in some ways. And because it's uh, the, the problematic I want to look at is, how do we move to multilateralize the results of TTIP? And TTIP is, is uh, at a very important juncture because something around the corner is waiting to happen, which is FTAAP, with China and US both in it. So one is that there are certain uh, uh, disciplines which will be negotiated, like digital trade, privacy, et cetera, investment, competition policy, transparency mechanisms, which by virtue of the fact that they are negotiated between US and EU, rest of the world will have to look at them as the kind of, of uh, regulatory principles or disciplines to follow. Another is the framework which will come up. And they can be in regulatory coherence uh, initiatives, as well as the SME platform. Today, SME and jobs is a very major issue in every economy. And we, we need to have some specific efforts to deal with them. So this is going to be the normal process. We need to add to that. The negotiators have to keep in mind the fact that they have to come up with a system which is inclusive rather than fragmenting or exclusionary. And that's where rules of origin, mutual recognition, certification, conformity assessment become very important. A deliberate impact effort is needed. After that, we have to also see, so it's, it's not that TTIP itself is going to move into multilateralization, a specific effort has to be made. Even more, uh, specific efforts have to be made outside that in WTO itself, and uh, inclusion of many other fora, because trade today is no longer just the issues which are covered in WTO. You go to uh, World Customs Council, you go to ITU, you go to uh, uh, the ILO, and they are discussing issues which are going to be part of TTIP. So a coherence mechanism far more relevant than what we have today is required. And one thing which people often uh, don't uh, consider is that the, the WTO agreements are actually plurilateral agreements in effect, because you have a whole structure of uh, different levels of disciplines amongst different members. What makes it multilateral is MFN. And what has prevented that is the, the fear of free riders, that if I give something which I'm giving as, uh, as uh, a liberal, liberalization of my market, etc., to somebody else, and I don't get the same kind of thing from the other. So it's reciprocity, but not e identical reciprocity. That is not fair. Then my producers are actually going to lose out. So we have to identify who are the free riders, which these key uh, economies are really concerned about. They are very few. So it's not the 161 members which will be the limit to multilateralization. It's the free riders or potential concern for free riders. That's the context in which China's name comes up very often. And the interesting thing is, my understanding of China's mindset is it doesn't 
today see itself as benefiting if it is outside that system. So it's actually prepared in a major way. IPR, investment, uh, uh, is, is prepared. It has a side agreement with, with the EU on, on labor uh, standards. So we are not dealing with the conventional China which we understand. We are dealing with a China which sees that there is interdependence with the rest of the world. Its investment is going out, its trade relations, the global value chains, all that is a very essential part of the vision of where the Chinese leadership wants the country to go. And it's increasingly beginning to take a root in the Indian uh, conceptualization as is evident from the efforts they want to make to go into APEC, because that's a preparatory route. So you have at least these two so-called free riders, which if you, 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 you address their concerns, then the process of multilateralization will become that much easier. But how do you address those concerns? Because even with those two, you have about 160 uh, uh, members, you have only support T uh, TPP and TTIP become, uh, uh, come together, you still will have about 100 members which are out. And as I said, what one has to determine is how to really have a conditional MFN. And that conditional MFN can be possible if you have a transition phase. How have you sorted Japan's agriculture problem or the US auto uh, tariff issues in TPP? Look at the number of years you have for, for uh, uh, implementing the, those agreements and the safeguards which are along the way. Actually, those kind of, you, you need much less than that in WTO to make it happen. And the, the, there are provisions in WTO which, which are already there, which distinguish between developing nations which provide you a, a, a breathing space and a review system to give you what I call manageable discomfort situation. Because the negotiation is always manageable discomfort. Very few actually have high comfort levels in that. So when you, when you take a look at that, and you have the kind of uh, developments which I've talked about in regulation or regulatory frameworks, and uh, Michelle uh, had, had mentioned some of the other international initiatives, there is enough to make an effort to move towards multilateralization. There is enough interest of some of those so-called potential free riders to make those adjustments. And once that happens, then we have to address some, things else, some, some other things which are yet to be addressed. Uh, I differ from Joachim in terms of his assessment of whether the impact will be positive or negative, and that's because much of world trade today is affected by private standards. And private standards, by the very nature, are not constant. They keep rising, because there are various reasons why they come into being. And uh, they are the ones which determine the global value chains. It's not the mandatory standards. It's, it's disciplines or some kind of efforts to bring more predictability, transparency in that process that will be required later. But th that is a, a, a place we will not be in if we are unable even to multilateralize TTIP. 
So we have to really see what is required. Some factors from TTIP will be leading to multilateralization. Some specific effort will be required to uh, keep an, a mindset which is inclusive. The WTO will have to consider changes. And yes, they may feel that now uh, if something is uh, that trade is a zero-sum game, especially if you are very poor, you have that feeling. But look at the, the kind of questions which the African leadership is today asking in the, the trilateral uh, trade initiatives. They basically are asking, how do we prepare to link up with the rest of the world, which is developing in ways which are very difficult for us to actually manage otherwise. And when you combine with all this, the increasing investment into developing countries and from developing countries, you have a, the, the, the incentive system for moving towards uh, some kind of landing zone where everyone is included in the system, rather than a situation where a number of nations will say, hey, I contribute to your prosperity, and you are going to keep me out. That is the, the situation which will really stimulate both those who are not thinking about this today in the context of TPP or TTIP, and those who are outside it, looking at it with some apprehension. Thank you. All right, before I open the floor for questions from the audience, uh, maybe throw out two questions, and if there are any takers of these. Um, a number of, uh, Harsha certainly touched upon this in terms of, um, actually all of you did, in terms of non-participants accepting certain terms, maybe not the whole tip, TTIP, but certain terms in there. The question I have is, if that's true, what are their incentives and under what conditions would they accept it? Um, to make this more specific. Second question is, um, all of us talked about in some way how WTO has to change. Uh, we did not mention, none of us actually, the things that are not part of TTIP which still requires global solutions, meaning fuel subsidies, agriculture subsidies, fish subsidies, none of which are appropriately dressed, addressed in any free trade agreement. So are we too gloomy on the on the role of WTO and the niche of WTO? In other words, um, the fact that there, there will never be a solution to these things unless it's a global solution. Uh, second link to that is, of course, the ITA. If there is an industry that is truly globalized, are mega regionals actually that interesting compared to doing it in WTO on a sectoral basis? And that would appeal to another niche of the WTO for which you, they don't have to sort of twist twist around in order to survive in a, in a, in a scenario of mega-regionals. So I want to throw that out as a starting point to try to go more into specifics. Vinod, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, I, I, I agree with you that we're likely to see this development where we have essentially both sectoral agreements taking place, like the ITA, ITA2, and maybe telecom agreements and so on, at the same time as we have mega FTAs. And I do agree that you, know, you really need to handle agriculture and fisheries and fuel subsidies and so on in the WTO. It's not clear to me, actually, that there will easily be a TTIP agreement given these regulatory issues that we have, right? So given that regulators are very unhappy about trade negotiators intruding onto their bailiwick, I think that's going to be very problematic. Uh, on, on the other question that you asked about third parties, I am less, I am less optimistic 
than Harsha Singh was about these countries accepting uh, the standards that are put out in TTIP. So take, for example, this question of TPP. I often used to say to U.S. trade negotiators, why don't you just ask the Chinese to join TPP rather than making this seem like it's TPP versus RCEP. And I'll say the reason they can't do that is because TPP, they can't join TPP because they have so much industrial policy, which is inconsistent with TPP, that they simply can't meet the standards. It's not clear to me that despite some progress on the Chinese leadership in terms of opening up their market and so on, that the Chinese don't have a completely cynical view of this. And they may be willing to join the agreement, but will there really be changes? One of my students has written extensively on the fact that industrial policy in China has simply shifted from the national level to the state level. And you can do what you want to do with industrial policy in the auto sector at the provincial level, state level, and not have to do it at the national level. So you can still engage in a lot of the same industrial policy approaches that you wanted to before. So the idea that somehow we're having a convergence in economic models around free market economics with no state intervention, despite what Cato may want to have us believe, I don't think is taking place in China. So I'm very skeptical that they will go along with some of these ideas. Just yeah, I, 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 I think I agree with the, um, the point, the bigger point that, you know, we keep talking about China and perhaps Switzerland, outsiders, how they could be left out, discriminated. If you look at it from a different perspective, they are arguably free riders. As I said, a lot of these provisions in PTAs are kind of public goods, and public goods you can only give once. Transparency, privatization, um, IP rights enhanced. So if I'm China, I get all of this for free without having to give anything. So the question then is, how do you, what are the incentives for China or Switzerland or outsiders to... to to join these arrangements, and I guess, I guess there you'd have to go back to tariff issues, government procurement. But it, it's a game changer. It's not so much that they're being discriminated, victims. In many ways, they have become free riders. If you look at TPP and the investment chapter there, TPP has 12 countries. We've looked at this. If you add another 10, 15, you, you can very easily get a critical mass of close to 90% of FDI flows in stocks. So you, you could, by just adding a, a handful of countries, really make a plurilateral that covers uh, critical mass. On your topics that must be dealt at in a multilateral setting, subsidies or other questions, that was the, the point I was trying to make. So I think it will even there be hard to do this with all 161. What I would like to see is plurilaterals, but in the WTO it's, it's almost impossible because even countries who are not part of the plurilateral have to agree that this can even be discussed in the WTO. So what I would like to see is that the WTO lets a subset of WTO members negotiate rules issues such as subsidies. Um, the other big thing that happened last week was the OECD coming out with brand new tax rules. This is 90 countries. This will have a huge impact on trade investment as well. It's not all 161 countries. So we need to find ways to translate these changes that are not WTO minors, it's just adaptation into the WTO framework. And as I said, the appellate body seems to be um, very hesitant about this. They accept changes to the WTO only through formal WTO amendments or waivers. And that, I think, is, uh, would be a mistake. Arsha? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, on uh, the... Each, each of these, there are certain concepts which uh, we have touched upon. And the key cons concept is, why is a plurilateral 
with MFN not happening in WTO. I effectively a multilateral because that's what the WTO agreements are all about. And it's not, hap it's not happened because of the difference of opinion between some who would make a critical difference not being part of, of uh, the, that agreement. Uh, the environmental goods agreement today is being negotiated in, in uh, WTO because the critical minimum and uh, the, the so-called free riders are all part of it. The uh, ITA 2 is being negotiated uh, because all the free riders or potential free riders are part of it. In that context, some, a country like India, which is not part of ITA 2, has not stopped that. It's still being negotiated. So the, the issue is that when we see something like TPP or TTIP, and it's not as if China is not, actually it's not a question of US asking China. China has asked many times the US, please let me be part of the deal. And it's not happened because US doesn't want to do that before it had the deal. And now let's see what happens, what, how uh, China and uh, China stopped asking uh, once it had uh, a bad experience with its uh, 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 TISA application. And uh, since 2013, China has kept out of the TISA negotiation precisely for the same reason why China was not allowed to enter anything which was significant in the context of TPP, even discussions. So the interesting thing is China actually is prepared today far more than what people see it as, as, as being prepared. It is conducting state enterprise reform. It's emphasizing environmental standards in a very big way. On labor standards, it has moved away. It used to stand with India in the ILO. It is no longer with India. I told you it has a side agreement with EU on labor standards. And perhaps in the investment agreement with the US, it will do something similar. And they have realized that the way to growth is through high value technology which means IPRs. This is something I've had detailed discussions with them. They are going to go <coughs> high-value technology, and in order to also protect their own investment outside, they want to have a strong investment agreement, maybe multilateralize it eventually, and also start introducing state-of-the-art IPR technologies. So when you see all this, they are not going to the momentum of these generic changes, so to say. They may be managed in parts of China and then spread over, but the change in China does happen like that. And it'll, uh, it has the incentives to participate rather than be out. Uh, the incentives to participate for others will also be, what do I lose out if I'm not a part of it? And today with TPP actually being done is far more pal palpable, what you can lose. So there are incentives. However, they have to be managed because the, uh, the countries which are outside don't really have the capabilities in the same way to, to take on multilaterally. And a lot of the, the WTO will not be part initially, and they have to brought up to that level of competence. On, uh, on uh, WTO sectoral basis, again, the free rider issue is there. Every, the interesting thing is, in terms of trade facilitation, there was a very strong movement when India was blocking it and a very strong viewpoint that, okay, let's all uh, put in our, our, uh, our we, we just uh, give whatever we have agreed together. 
doesn't matter if India is not part of the deal. The legal structure of, of WTO, if there is a mandate to do something, allows that. You can have an agreement between two parties, and if you are willing to have MFN, you can actually make it part of WTO. The reason why it didn't happen was because of the political consequences of this. And India was actually trying to work things out domestically. And the WTO members, they realized that this was the case. And ultimately, we did have a trade facilitation agreement with India. So it's preferable to have it with them rather than without them. But today, I've seen a change in perspective where members say, fine, they, this country doesn't want to come with us. Let's do it just by ourselves. And we give MFN. So that is the way it will go if uh, those who find that disincentive too high to be part of the system. On, on uh, the public goods aspects, actually, one is the rules and uh, the, the promulgation of rules, and second is how you actually implement them. And it's the implementation where the discrimination will come. And if you are discriminated against in an FTA, you have zero Equals. capability of questioning them in a dispute settlement system if you are not a member. So in effect, even these issues have to be multilateralized precisely for giving full effect to inclusiveness. That's, that's something which, which we have to keep in mind. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will use the authority to just respond to Harsha on the private standards uh, where I disagree with you because uh, it's not part of trade negotiations. I think this is a very important issue, but the problem is that trade negotiators are too afraid of dealing with it, uh, partly because you don't want to enter into mar what is market-driven developments. It is true. It's a very important issue, and it's a defining for global value chains, but I haven't yet to come across a single trade negotiator. Can I that had give a short point to that? If you see the G7 declaration, the, the G7 governments are saying we will monitor the implementation of sustainable development social standards in global value chains operated by our enterprises which are located in our territory. The government is already, you know, Michelle talked about incorporation by reference. The government, through that declaration, 8 June this year, has actually become a party to private standards also in global value chains. So my point is that since they impact so much upon whatever uh, uh, global business, however global business is conducted, and if you are already a party through monitoring and ensuring that the standards are, are actually uh, uh, implemented throughout the, the value chains, you might as well start talking in any agreement be it uh, an FTA or the multilateral one, about how to make sense for everyone so that global, global trade and investment doesn't bear the additional costs but is facilitated further. Sure. So that's the point. But, but we're still waiting to see that happening in yeah, any if, trade negotiation. If it doesn't happen, then that's the next frontier. Yes, yes. and that's true. As is coherence. Uh, so I open the floor. Yes, you have a question here. Uh, Mike? And if you could be so kind to introduce yourself when you're asking the question. Yeah. 
my name is Li Yang. I just wonder if you can really address the problem for all this uh, agreement will bring us. I think when we are saying a free market, we are saying the free in a sense of fairness to all people, whoever who are interested in particular adventure. Not free to whatever you think is a special interest group, they take whatever they want and it's free to them without sort of um, uh, fair cost to them. And I just wonder, and, uh, in, in America, the labor or workers group, they are thinking, doing things, buy things made in America, not from uh, other country. So do you think the agreement will be become a sort of bullying, special, uh, or lower poverty group or labor working group, or some poor poverty country, rather than fair with humanity to support them to invest, you know, a lot of charity, a lot of philanthropists, they are very well to invest something with, without uh, going through the corporate or trade agreement. So I just wonder if you can say any problem that can cause, they say the privatization or public-private partnership, they are uh, most likely misleading and it's unjust. So would you be address those problems? And you're, you're just a question. Are you directing your question to any particular but one in uh, panel or all the panel? All the panel. All you the panel. are very good position to solve our global problems. Okay. Do we have more questions? Yes, we have one here. First of all, thanks for a very good panel. Um, second, let me just uh, 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 support Harsha's point on the role of private standards. I mean, de facto today, <clears throat> a lot of, in a lot of sectors, government-mandated market access is dependent on the compliance with private standards and that they're being followed. So this is not just an issue of private, private nature anymore. It's an issue about that governments increasingly have designed regulations in order to make private standards more important than they are. The question I would like to ask to the panel, uh, and I would like to put it in somewhat provocative terms. Now, if the point is to use the sort of the political tailwind from mega regionals or FTAs in order to shake the WTO system into action. Isn't it favorable then that FTAs, mega regionals, whatever they call them, are going to be as much trade divertive as possible? That you are going to build tensions into the system which is going to change the political calculation in those countries that so far have either refused or ignored global trade liberalization because status quo is politically more favorable to them. So judging by the history, how global or multilateral GATT type of success have been created, it wasn't so much about trying to deal with protection or obvious protectionism uh, existence between different countries was much more an issue about trying to take away uh, preferential and discriminatory effects that existed through various types of, <coughs> of existing economic agreements. I mean, you can go back to sort of the Kennedy round and the role of creating uh, the common market in the EU and sort of the political uh, coalescing effect it had on, on, on United States and others to 
to move forward with a global trade agreement. You can go to the Eurogai round with NAFTA, the creation of the single market, and see the sort of very strong political uh, effects that these uh, trade diverting uh, initiatives had on building uh, fear among other countries that if they uh, if these initiatives were not going to become eventually uh, part of a WTO system, it was going to create a lot of trade aversion. So from the political economy viewpoint, then, shouldn't we try to make these agreements as much trade averters as we can? Uh, I'll start with the second question, if no one disagrees with that, as a, uh, since I was also a panelist. Uh, uh, I think there's a mix-up. It depends on who. The, the political correct answer is no. The reality of negotiator is yes. I mean, negotiators think like that, and I used to be a negotiator. The problem you have is that currently the impasse in WTO has a huge collateral damage. It's called the poorer developing countries, particularly the LDCs. Now, they're not the ones hijacking the system or preventing progress. As Harsha correctly pointed out, it's a rather small group that are incapable of moving forward. So why would you devise a trade agreement, a mega regional, that adds to the already heavy burdens that are on their shoulders, which does have a direct toll. So this makes a lot of sense if you think you can engineer a, a, a direct effect on one developing country as opposed to another one. It, it's, however, very difficult to do so without having a huge collateral damage, which just happens to be the majority of the WTO memberships who are already the collateral damage of the deadlock in WTO. That's my view on that issue. Well, I think I would like to raise one issue. I mean, there's all this enthusiasm for both mega FTAs and sectoral agreements. So what we forget is that in many cases, what we really want to do is sectoral trade-offs. And I think the real problem is that the developing countries have rightly complained that there has not been agricultural liberalization in the rich countries. I even heard a former WTO economist, who I will not mention his name or her name, who said very bluntly that you know the WTO has been, and GATT, were very much against, tilted against the developing countries. And I think in many respects that's right, in the sense if you look at every time there was liberalization, there were always exceptions textiles, for example, where developing countries were successful, and we have this whole history of voluntary export restraints that as soon as you became competitive in some sector, VERs were imposed on you by Europe and the United States and other countries as well. So, uh, yes, it sounds great. I do political economy. It sounds very appealing to me to beat them into submission through trade diversion, but I think the reality is that I don't think that's really in, in some sense equitable, and I think, in the uh, in, and more practically, there probably will not be very clear rules set up by the EU and the US. Uh, it's going to be hard for them to get movement on regulatory standards and finance a lot of these issues. And on other issues, they may just agree to not deal with issues like agriculture and the like, because they both are very protectionist to agriculture. I'm not going to say who's more protectionist, the US or EU. I might just point out that we're in the middle of a massive drought in California, and there's still growing rice in the Imperial Valley, which is a desert. Right? So uh, clearly there is some protectionism in the United States in agriculture, forget EU protectionism. So I don't see how those problems are going to be addressed. And even if they cut a deal in the mega FTA, how will that multilateralize into the WTO since agriculture is essentially could be excluded? Yeah, on, on private standards, I, I think creative lawyers, and I'm one of those, could argue that it's already covered under TBT private standards, standards enacted by non-governmental bodies that you could go after, or even classify as international <coughs> standards that need to be followed. So there's already some of that covered. On uh, Frederick's point, I think you're, you're spot on. Uh, 
there's less trade diversion, I would say, because these new deeper PTAs, so less of a pressure for others to join in. And I don't see this as a problem. I, I think it's wrong to think that everything needs to be multilateralized. There are certain issues that will never be agreed upon amongst 161 countries. If you look at the EU, even in the EU, we have multiple speed. We have Euro countries, we have all kinds of provisions that apply to a subset only. Why on earth should the WTO stick to its single undertaking? It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Uh, uh, it's very important what Juice just said, multiple speeds. And that is the only way you can multilateralize. And uh, WTO gave up on single undertaking in 2011 ministerial meeting. So, you know, we, the structure is open. Uh, in terms of uh, what uh, you, you talked about, whether there is uh, an incentive to make it as trade diversionary as possible, actually it depends on which agreement you are talking about. If it's the TPP, it's not the trade diversion to adversely affect uh, the non-members, it's more to attract the members to be a part of a deal through a, uh, agreement-specific development of value chains. And this is something which the USDR has said many times, that it will create much better conditions for value chains amongst us. Uh, to agree to certain kind of uh, uh, disciplines which otherwise would not be as attractive. So, but in, in uh, TTIP, I think uh, both uh, uh, US and EU would like others to follow the system, which is uh, 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 now the system which they would like to emphasize in order to create a fair and level playing field in terms of subsidies to state enterprises, in terms of standards on environment and labor, so, so that the so-called uh, competitive neutrality conditions are maintained. And if that is the case, uh, they have to balance the issue which you talked about and greater acceptance by those who, who are also the objective of that entire system. And uh, therefore, uh, I, I expect there to be some kind of mechanism for this to be extended to include others. Uh, uh, Professor uh, Agarwal actually uh, mentioned that as an advice to TTIP negotiators. I think that's very good advice uh, to, to keep that in mind. Uh, on, the, on, on, the, on, on the other hand, uh, uh, as far as multilateralization is concerned, you know, when we think of multilateralization, we have to think of the core and then the rest. And there are things, uh, systems like reference paper in telecom, etc., which are recommendations agreed. So you could see whatever is agreed in TTIP as a recommendatory package, and people could then just schedule it. And that's possible under the WTO uh, legal system. So there are many ways it could be done, provided the free rider problem is addressed. I'll leave everyone with the last question that are not supposed to respond to now, but think about it, because the presumption of this panel was, how do we make the systems compatible? How do we multilateralize? We were all arguing. Are there certain things in TTIP that really should not be multilateralized at all? 
There shouldn't even be an attempt to extend beyond the two parties. So I leave that with, question with you. And now I have a, a, an announcement by the organizers, which is that the luncheon and the interview will be held on the second floor or a second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. So it's up the spiral staircase. Restrooms, which is very important information heading for lunch, restrooms are on the second floor on the way to the lunch. Look for the yellow wall. Thank you very much on behalf of the panelists. We'd like to thank the organizers. Well, yes. <laughs>